Colossians chapter 2 Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Over recent weeks, we have been following the, the book of Colossians, and Paul's argument in this letter is that, um, well, he, he's showing us what true Christian spirituality looks like. We saw in chapter 1 that the Colossian church received the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, from Epaphras, who, who planted that church. Uh, and... And they were growing in that gospel. They were understanding it more. They were being obedient to it. And that is what it looks like to, to have a true Christian spirituality, to be rooted in that gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? Well, it is that Jesus Christ is the supreme uh, authority over heaven and earth, God in the flesh, and that he has taken the penalty for sin our sin on himself and reconciled us to a holy God. He's given us a sure and eternal hope. That, that's the essence of what the gospel is. And Paul is saying, you heard it, Colossians. You received it. Now remain on in it. Christian maturity and spiritual growth come from understanding that more and uh, living it out more. Not from any additional thing. But in chapter 2, we've been seeing that all kinds of false teachers come into the church in, in Colossae and also in our day. And, and they'll come along trying to, to kidnap us away from our Savior and our Lord. They'll, they'll tell us that uh, Jesus is not enough. They might say, oh, well, Jesus, he's good. J Jesus, he, he's important. But if you want to get to the, the next level of spirituality, if, if you want to really see God's power, then you'll need this additional thing. And we saw last week that since they're completely unable to deliver on those hollow and, and empty promises, well, they have to go elsewhere to, to persuade people. They can't show the results. And so they, they go back to the antiquity of their teaching. This is what all the ancient fathers believed, or, or this is what our ancestors did. And they say, uh, look at how um, very rooted in our history these teachings are. 
And that's how they persuade people to come along and to, to be kidnapped. Um, these are the, the, the secret truths, the, the mystical practices, the, the ancient techniques that unlock spiritual growth. But as we saw, that is complete rubbish. We saw that last week because in Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. You cannot get more spiritual. You cannot get more God than all the fullness of God. And that is who Jesus is. And if Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, then what other authorities can we go to 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 gain something more spiritually? There are none. Because no one has more authority than him. And yet in today's reading, verses 16 to 23, we, we see still more tactics of the false teachers used to kidnap people from Christ. While they uh, point to ancient man-made traditions to give them credibility, false teachers will try to impress or persuade Christians with religious legalism, uh, mystical experiences, and strict asceticism. They'll use these outward signs of spirituality to lead people away from Jesus. But Paul shows that despite all their pretensions, these spiritual teachers and their techniques are completely without value for Christian people. That's what we're going to see this morning. And so we'll, we'll deal with it as Paul does in verses 16 and 17. His first point is this. Don't let anybody judge you by hollow religious Legalism. Uh, among the false teachers of, uh, of Colossae who were, who were drawing people away from the gospel that they received were these super religious legalists. And that is who Paul is warning them about in verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by the way you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. In the ancient world, and even today, when people think about religion, the sorts of things that they think about are often food and festivals. So if you're a Hindu, well, you show your seriousness about your, your uh, Hinduism by being a vegetarian and by celebrating Diwali and, and all the other feast days in the temple. If you're a religious Muslim, well, you only eat halal. And you fast at Ramadan, right? That's how you show that you take it seriously. And if you're a religious Jew, well, you eat only kosher foods, you you keep the Sabbath day, you celebrate Passover and all the other feasts. Food and festivals are the way that religious people show religious seriousness. And it seems that the Colossian Christians were under pressure to observe certain religious practices. In all probability, this is uh, Jewish people or, or Jewish background Christians, maybe, saying, if you really want to take your faith seriously, you need to become more Jewish. You need to celebrate the Jewish holidays. You need to keep the Jewish food laws. And they were, they were looking to the Old Testament laws and if the Christians refused to do that, they were likely being judged. I have Hindu friends who they eat meat normally, but when they're around their parents, they don't. And they don't talk about doing so because they know that the judgment that they'll receive when they do that is going to be harsh. So they avoid the topic. 
And, and maybe it's that sort of judgment that these Christians were facing from, from the, the Jewish uh, people or Jewish background believers around them. They likely questioned their seriousness, their love for God, their place within the people of God. But the truth is that Christians have been freed from observing Old Testament food laws and, and festivals. During his earthly ministry, Jesus had declared all foods clean. We, we see that in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 20, as well as in Matthew. When Jesus ascended into heaven, as Peter was going out and carrying this gospel to people, uh, Peter got a bit confused, and other Jewish Christians were getting a bit confused, and so he got a vision of, of all the, the animals of the earth coming down on a blanket, and God saying, take up and eat. It, that's in Acts chapter 10. And that was certainly Paul's teaching too. We see that in 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, among other places. God could not have made it more clear through Jesus, through the apostles, to every Christian person, that Christians are not made spiritually better or spiritually worse based on the foods that they eat. We can't get closer to God by eating or drinking in any kind of way. And in a similar way, festivals and holy days no longer affect a Christian standing before God. So, so from the time of the book of Acts onward, Christians no longer kept the Sabbath day on the seventh day of the week like the Jews. Rather, they gathered together on Sundays, on the Lord's day, the, the day that the Lord was resurrected from the dead. That's when they gathered together to worship God together. And not with strict rules and regulations governing them, but out of a spirit of thankfulness and a joy of being together and encouraging each other on. Very different from the way that the, the Sabbath came to be observed, even in Jesus' day and certainly up to our day. And what the Sabbath promised Rest and fellowship with God was fulfilled by Jesus. Likewise, all the yearly cycle of festivals that pointed, toward, toward, pointed forwards toward uh, a coming day, they were fulfilled by Jesus. So we could think of many examples, but a, a very easy one is, is Passover. So the, Jesus is the better Passover lamb. His blood is covering over all those who, who have faith in him, and therefore we are protected from God's wrath. And so we don't have to celebrate the Passover feast anymore because we have the Passover lamb in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who has come. Why keep celebrating a lesser thing when the greater has come? That's the point in verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So, so Christ fulfilled every Jewish food law and every holiday that uh, pointed towards him. He fulfilled it. So why hold on to the sign when the thing that the sign pointed to is here? I mean, currently those of us who um, are, are from elsewhere, we are stuck in Hong Kong, most of us, and... We can't see family members who are in our home countries or abroad somewhere. And so we're very grateful, aren't we, for things like FaceTime and Zoom and whatever other video conferencing that we use. We're very grateful for that. But could you imagine 
That when the day comes that you're able to travel again, you fly back to your hometown, your, your family lives there, your, your friends live there, but you refuse to go out and see them, you just want to FaceTime. Now that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Because you could have them in the flesh, but you want the, the pixels on a screen. That would be crazy. But that is what it's like to hold on to these Old Testament laws when when Jesus has come in the flesh. Why settle for the religious practices when the one they point to is right here? And so Paul says, don't allow the judgment of religious legalists to carry any weight with you. They might think very highly of themselves. They might be very well respected in the community and everyone might be very impressed, but they are actually just playing in the shadows. That's what he says. They are, they're focused on things that don't matter at all. Like someone holding on to a check uh, and, and refusing to cash it. They cling to these practices and refuse to find the fulfillment in Jesus. They're foolish and not worth listening to. Now, that said, if you want to celebrate Christmas or Easter or uh, a, a Saint's Day, that, that is fine. That's actually perfectly fine for a Christian to do. Many Christians do. Or or if you want to observe certain rules and and practices in your household with your family on a Sunday that allow you to, to more fully devote yourself to God, that is fine. That can be helpful to do. Maybe put the phone away or or have meals together or, or whatever it might be. But if you begin to judge other Christians and, and look down on them as somehow less spiritual, as somehow second class, because they don't do the things that you do, well, then you're slipping into the error of the religious legalists. For all of your traditions, you might just be playing in the shadows. And so we have to keep a watch on ourselves, right? Because it's easy to slip in to those mindsets. But, but hollow legalism, that's not the only possible error. Uh, Christians also need to watch out for deceptive mysticism. And that's the point in verses 18 and 19. Don't let anyone disqualify you with deceptive mystical experiences. If legalists are used to the, uh, if they use the pressure of judgment to persuade Christians... And mystics can use the supposed power of supernatural experiences to disqualify people from the prize that Jesus won for them. Verse 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen. The the word translated as false humility I'm going to butcher the Greek for Nikos' sake back here. Tapen frosune, tapene frosune, something to that effect. Um, it, it might be referring to fasting or, or to acts of self-abasement. It, it could also be translated as asceticism. It, it's something about uh, denying yourself. The worship of angels may refer to either worshiping angels because they were too humble to worship God directly, so they worship through the angels to God. 
Or it could be that they believed that the worship that they were offering to God was somehow spiritually elevated and alongside the angels they were worshiping. As though their their services reached another plane of existence. And going into great detail about what they've seen suggests that they were making much of their own elevated experiences but having to explain them to you poor, impoverished, uh, second-class Christians. Uh, And so, what is the false teaching that they were putting across? Well, some people suggest it was pagan mysticism. Some people suggest it was Jewish mysticism. uh, Sorry, pagan Gnosticism or Jewish mysticism. The reality is we don't know exactly what religious perspective they were coming from. But we can see the same sort of impulses in all sorts of spiritual, uh, super spiritual movements today from the ecstatic experiences of pagan religions for the the whirling dervishes in Sufi Islam, you might think, or the enlightened gurus uh, of Hinduism, to the the claimed religious visions uh, of Orthodox and Roman Catholic mystics, to the supposed private revelations and experiences coming out of hugely popular Pentecostal movements like Bethel Church in the States. So in all these places, we see the same kind of experiences being claimed, the same sort of supercharged spirituality that are only available to the initiated. The idea being that you and I, ordinary Christians, are second class somehow. We don't have the fullness. Oh, you don't speak in tongues? I'll pray for you, brother. Oh, you, you don't see your prayers answered? Well, well you should humble yourself like us. Uh, don't pray directly to God. Pray through the saints. They'll help you. Oh, you don't receive private revelations from God. Well, there is more available if you join our school of supernatural ministry, if you take up our monastic rule of life, if you practice our kind of meditation, if you fast at these times of year, if you humble yourself and accept the teachings of our leader, well, then you'll break through. Are you ready to break through? Join us. But according to Paul, whatever the specifics of these teachings are, the super-spiritual leaders are frauds. And we can call them out as such. They're puffed up with, with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Not only are they not attaining the heights that they claim uh, of humility and spiritual experience, but they are actually arrogant um, because of their unspiritual or, or fleshly minds. All their claims to be communing with angels or, or other such spiritual heights are actually just in their heads, says Paul. Fleshly minds. The super spiritual leaders who, who would treat ordinary Christians as second class have themselves been cut off from Christ, the head. They're, they're running around like headless chickens, no direction. No, no sense of, of um, connection to the source of all spiritual life. And more than that, these super spiritual teachers and sects will also necessarily separate themselves from other parts of the church. 
So without Christ over them to hold them together with the whole body who who knits together the, the sinews and ligaments, well, they splinter off into their own little groups. They claim that their church is the one true church. Their little movement is enjoying the fullness of the spirit. Their little gathering is where God is active and not so much elsewhere. But without being supported and held together with the rest of the body of Christ, their movement will shrivel and die. It might take some time, but it'll shrivel and die because it's not part of that one holy Catholic and apostolic church that we talked about, the universal church. Follow after the super spiritual pretenders and you will be disqualified, says Paul. Finally, in addition to the the dangers of hollow legalism and deceptive mysticism, Paul adds a warning about one more kind of false teaching, strict asceticism. That's verses 20 to 23. Don't let anybody enslave you with strict asceticism. As Paul's been arguing throughout his letter, Christ is the supreme authority in heaven and earth, and no one uh, can offer more spiritual blessings or additional spiritual blessings apart from him. And if that is the case, then it makes absolutely no sense to submit to strict, uh, super strict leaders with their rules and regulations. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teaching. Living in Hong Kong, I can't help but think of some of the elementary spiritual principles at work in this place that govern the lives of many people, and many Christians even. There are auspicious times of year, and and then there are less auspicious times. There are numbers that are auspicious and numbers that aren't. There are layouts of rooms that will bring prosperity and, and success, and there are layouts that will bring defeat and ruin. And there are times when you can discuss business in the year and other times when you don't dare. And I'm sure uh, those of you who are from this culture can recognize uh, many more things than I can that, that govern the way that people live, even Christian people. But why? <laughs> why would we submit to these human rules and regulations? How often have Christians found themselves obe- obeying silly man-made rules and regulations? Christians throughout church history have agreed to enslavement by other rules as well. No fish on Fridays. No sex with your spouse on holy days. No marriage for priests. No, um, no real Christians drink alcohol. No proper Christians will be found uh, eating uh, and drinking and carrying on during Lent. That's a time when we fast if we're real proper Christians. They move on from do not handle to do not taste to do not even touch. It's progressive. The the more rules you allow in, the more rules begin appearing until you're completely enslaved. But that is not what uh, Christians have been called to. Christians are not to grow used to the chains. Christ has set us free. 
So why would we submit to these things? We don't show spiritual health or growth by obeying human rules, even very good rules, seemingly wise rules. We don't show spiritual growth by them. We show it by holding ever more fastly to Christ our head. And while the super strict might say that their rules will help you get rid of sin or or draw near to Christ, Paul says they're of no value, none at all. A few years back, an investigative piece aired in uh, the UK about a man named John Smythe. In the 1980s in England, Smythe had been a leader of a a Christian camp uh, that was put on for public school boys. So the the schoolboys from the top boarding schools in the country. And these were summer camps where they would have the gospel uh, explained to them and they would have a lot of fun. And, and it was aimed at the elites. And it was very successful, actually. Lots of uh, impressive Christian leaders came out of it. Lots of people were saved eternally through the ministry of this camp. But through leading on the camp, Smythe formed uh, mentoring relationships with some of the young men leaders. And um, he, he promised them that he would help them grow to new spiritual heights in their Christian discipleship. But what only came to light many years later is that Smythe's version of spiritual mentorship was actually a twisted and abusive sort of leadership. The kind of thing, I think, that Paul's talking about here. It involved him beating these young men in his garden shed to help them overcome sin in their lives. And so uh, here's how one of the victims, who is now a pastor of one of the the bigger and more influential um, university churches in the UK, this is how he describes the experience, because he was one of the victims. And I think it perfectly describes what Paul is talking about. He first tells of how he became a Christian at university in his first term at Cambridge, and he was growing in his faith. He was learning more and more. He loved Bible teaching. About two years later, he he fell in with Smythe through volunteering at this Christian camp. And this is what he says. Uh, The following summer, 1981, I went back to camp, and it was then that I first found myself drawn into John Smythe's orbit. He was one of the leaders. He was charming, plausible, and distinguished, a QC. So when he invited me to go and visit him and his wife for a night at their house near Winchester over the Christmas holidays, I sensed no danger. After supper, he read me extracts from a book by A.W. Tozer. The the theme of his out-of-context quotes was discipline. As I recalled it, he also referred to the Bible verses from uh, Proverbs 3 and Hebrews 12, which are about the Lord's discipline. He didn't tell me what this was leading up to. Instead, he suggested I ask a friend or two whom he named, also campers and Cambridge undergraduates, uh, what this was all about when I got back to Cambridge. Well, that night, I remember waking up with an inexplicable sense of unease. There was something wrong. I I couldn't put my finger on it. Of course, now I realize I was being groomed. But that was just it. I couldn't spot it at the time. On returning to Cambridge for my final Lent term in in January 1982, I asked a fellow undergraduate who Smythe had told me I could speak with uh, uh, what this was all about. He explained it was a a matter of enduring physical beating to drive out sins such as lust or pride. I found this deeply disturbing, but instead of simply rejecting it, there began a battle within me to see if I was wholehearted enough to go through with this. After all, scripture had been quoted. And I was aware of sin in my life. 
Well, after some days, I surrendered to what I thought was the dutiful path. The same student then offered to come with me to Smythe, and we drove to Winchester sometime in January of 82. And that evening, Smythe and I went out to his shed while the other person remained in the house with Anne Smythe, his wife. As for what happened in the shed, my fellow survivor uh, was accurate when he described the beating as, quote, violent, excruciating, and shocking. It was ferocious and humiliating. I never went again. I'm unable to forget this experience. We'll pick up uh, what he says in just a moment, but notice how um, persuasive false teachers can be. He was impressive and well-respected. He was involved in a successful ministry. He was quoted, he was quoting, or or rather misquoting, scripture and, and famous authors. He convinced dozens of Cambridge undergraduates, these intelligent young uh, Christians, that his path was the one that was going to take them forward in faith. He made it seem so plausible. Verse 23, such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Smythe's teaching and all man-made teaching are of no spiritual value because they don't have the principle of life in them. They're from dead men, not the living Christ. Only the Spirit of God can draw someone to the living Christ. And that's what happened for this uh, young man, now... um, now pastor. He says, the next day I returned to Cambridge and Lent term was on. It was a busy time with the run-up to finals, but life could not now be normal. I struggled inwardly to process what I had experienced and was experiencing. It was a time of terrible turmoil. For the first time, I had doubts about the reality of the Christian faith. More than this, what had happened was so different from the very happy and wholesome experience I'd had at church, at Christian Union, and at camp and the liberating teaching of Christ. However, we had learnt at church and camp to read the scriptures for ourselves. Smythe had charged him not to speak to anybody uh, about this. And so he, he poured over his Bible, and a light began to dawn. He was struck, he says, by how Paul warned the Colossians about the false teachers with their harsh treatment of the body, but who lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I read of the thorn in Paul's flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, whose value I had been assured of, but which turned out in an immediate sense to be a messenger of Satan. A favorite verse of Smythe's, Hebrews 12:4, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the shedding of blood, was in fact written to Christians experiencing persecution. Moreover, and most importantly, since the Lord Jesus had died on the cross for our sins, why should we need to suffer for them? And what's more, I was now beginning to doubt whether Smythe's approach was biblical. Finally, one morning, February 12, 1982, I was reading Psalm 23 and noticed verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. That's it, I realized. The Lord is my shepherd, not John Smythe. The pieces now fitted together. I knew that I didn't have to refer everything to Smythe, and it wasn't his discipline to which I had to submit. I had an enormous sense of relief. 
Friends, how do we safeguard ourselves from false teachers and false teaching? How do we keep from being drawn in by the the super religious, the, the super spiritual, the super strict? We continue in the message that we've received. Christ Jesus is Lord and not anyone else, not anything else. In him, all the blessings of God are found and nowhere else. However clever, however impressive, unless somebody is pointing us back to Christ and deeper into our relationship with him that we find in the scriptures, well, then they're leading us astray. They may kidnap us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you uh, defend your people, that you hold on to us, that you want to warn us of the dangers in this world. Lord, please keep us, each and every one here, from following after any kind of harmful false teaching. Please keep us following Christ alone, finding our blessing in him alone. And please might we look out for other Christians as well, helping them to see that it's only in relationship with Christ that they will be spiritually fulfilled. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.